welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's guest is Tony Rustell. Tony is co-founder of Top Consultant, the industry's leading career website, and the founder of Social Hire, a social media marketing agency that counts many consulting firms among its clients and helps partners in those firms to generate client leads for their practices. If you work in the UK consulting industry, then you will know Top Consultant. It's a site that everyone I know in the industry uses, me included. In my case, Top Consultant has led me to apply for roles that have turned into friendships with some of the people who have appeared on this podcast. In a world where businesses are being disrupted and challenged almost every day, I've always admired how Top Consultant has been able to keep such a dominant market position for so long. And Tony was kind enough to share his secrets for this in today's interview. We cover so much ground in this conversation, including how Top Consultant started and the unusual tactics Tony used to grow the business in its early days, how Top Consultant grew over the years and how Tony and his co-founder were able to stay receptive to changing industry demands to keep their offering front and centre in the market. Tony's advice for other entrepreneurs or those thinking of launching their own business in tech, consulting or any other field and the importance of understanding and leveraging social media like LinkedIn when it comes to building your career or your business. Tony shares so much great advice in this episode, and it was fantastic to speak with someone whose business has been such an important part of the consulting industry for so long. If you are considering launching your own business or want to understand how you can grow your current business, then this episode is a must listen. So without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Tony Rustell. Hi there, Tony, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Nick. So I'm really excited about this conversation. You, for those who don't know, were one of the founders of Top Consultant, which is something that I think everybody in the industry does know. And funnily enough, was a job board that led me to meet some now very good friends and partners in firms that I've done work with or talked and now on the associate books for. So thank you very much for setting it up. And I'm really excited to find out all about it and find out the story behind it. So probably worth starting, actually. That's given people a little bit of an intro, but for those who maybe don't know you, if you could just give a bit of background on how you got to where you are today. Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, I pursued, I guess, the the classic route into consulting. So I spent, studied at Cambridge University, came out having studied economics and French, and then finished up with management studies at the business school. Came out, joined Roland Berger, the strategy consultancy who... Back then in those days, um, talking sort of mid-1990s, were pretty small and, and start-up in the UK. So I joined, it was exciting, joined a, a global brand, but in an office that only had 20 people at the time. So it was part established brand and all the training and everything that goes with that. But it was also part, you know, this is a startup office, everyone gets involved in everything. Spent four years there, going up the, the career ladder, got I think four promotions during that time and sort of reached the the stage where it would be natural to either head off and, and do an MBA, as a number of my colleagues and, and friends did at that time, or leave and, and start up a venture. And yeah, the timing was just good that uh, the opportunity to launch Top Consultant around that time seemed ripe. And so I left in the beginning of 2000 uh, to set up Top Consultant with a, a colleague from Roland Berger, and yeah, the, the rest is history, really. Fantastic. And we'll we'll touch on, 
I know you're, you've sort of been in the tech space now since then and doing some exciting things with other businesses as well, which we'll touch on later in the podcast. I want to start there on the top consultant story and actually on that, that co-founder and how you two decided you'd work together and go forward. Because this, for me, is something I, I've asked a number of guests and I know a number of my listeners are looking to start their own business. And I think this is always one of those areas that is least spoken about and sort of just people go, it happens. But I'm always interested actually how the idea came about and how you and your co-founder decided you would you would work together and take the leap. Mm. Yeah, so I founded with uh, Paul Chantry and Paul and I had worked on projects together at Roland Berger. So we'd spent, you know, as everyone who's on the call who's a consultant knows, we'd spent a lot of time uh, in one another's pockets on on, on projects. So, you know, ha- had lots of uh, lunches and uh, meals in, in the evening and so on to, you know, t- to bond. And I, yeah, I remember we just you know, had a conversation at one stage that if either of us ever had an idea to launch a business, we'd, you know, we'd turn to the other one and see if they were interested in getting involved. And, you know, we both went away and fermented on various ideas. And uh, at a certain point, you know, th- this came up as a, an idea and a a conversation um, and it just really went from there i I think having a co-founder can be forced if you know if you feel like you have to have one then you could end up you know choosing someone for the wrong reasons or they're not being the history there that you know is needed to to make it a success we were also very fortunate in that we had really complementary skills so you know paul is really strong strategically He's really strong on the technology and IT side, whereas my forte is much more on the the sort of sales side of the business. So between us, that gave us the skills to, you know, to build the site and all the technology needed for that and to go out and, you know, quickly win sales and make it viable. But if, you know, if both of our skills have been in sales or both of our skills have been in, you know, the, the strategy and tech side, then, you know, maybe the business would never have taken off. Given the timeline you've sort of mentioned, I'm assuming you're sort of mid-20s when you launched the business. Is that, that about right? Yeah. I'm assuming you didn't have a huge amount of cash behind you to, to sit on, you know, to, to let you ride it out if it didn't work. You know, how, how did you set or what questions did you ask yourself before resigning and going out to make sure that you were comfortable that there was enough in this business that it was worth taking a shot? And then also making sure that you sort of personally were set up such that you could run for however long it was you thought you needed to make it a success? So I'd been, you know, very fortunate in getting on the property ladder very quickly when I graduated. So I was in a position that I, you know, owned a a nice place with a friend, had accumulated some good bonuses. And then, you know, sometimes, sometimes entrepreneurial success comes down to luck as well. You know, Roland Berger being German had very good contractual terms in terms of how long you know the notice period was you had to give and they had a a track record of putting people on gardening leave if they were going to leave that was at that point I don't know if it still is today but so I was able to leave you know with enough money under my belt that you know I knew I could see out six seven eight months of working on this flat out to to get it to the point where it was it was viable and also, it was very much a startup funded by ourselves. We didn't have any external investors, yeah, maybe a, a small amount of credit card debt just to, to get things off the ground. 
but really as soon as it started bringing in money that was you know going to be able to start paying you know me a salary and and then Paul a salary to be able to to take the leap as well and we'll come on to sort of the broader sales piece because I think we can we can spend a long time on actually the sales skills because I think it's something that in consulting especially in the junior grades is is probably neglected to an extent and seen as something only seniors should do but you mentioned Paul he had the tech background so I think you know what I was curious how you how you were able to develop the tech platform and I think that answers that side but you both came from a consulting background now consultants like to think recruitment is quite simple but from the recruiters I know and I've spoken to there's a lot of nuances in that industry it's it's a very different industry to consulting albeit it works with consultants how much of a learning curve was learning the recruitment industry for you and and how did you get yourself up to speed such that you could credibly go and present that offering to consulting firms at the time so there's a few different points there i mean the first thing is it was really conversations with some recruiter friends and consulting friends that gave me the strong impression that there was a business here okay because i would uh, i would talk to friends who were in recruiting and they would say you know I, i've won these roles i need to try and find them to fill consulting is a nightmare to work in because our colleagues on the investment banking desk you know the analysts in that sector they're being quoted in the newspapers all the time so you know if you need to know who are 20 analysts that cover the food and drink sector then you know their names have been in print so in a in a you know day and age when linkedin didn't exist if you did your research you could identify who a lot of these people were and know who to go after whereas consulting really was you know shrouded in secrecy you know there, there was no register out there of who was a consultant and who wasn't and so i had on one hand lots of friends who were at the point where you know they'd been in consulting 3 4 5 years and were you know either wanting to get out of consulting or wanting to move to another firm and they had no idea who were the recruitment firms that they should turn to for help the only names that anyone really knew back in those days were the companies who had advertised on university campus so you know back at cambridge and i'm sure it was the same at oxford and and you know the other hunting grounds for consulting firms there were a handful of firms blt huntswood as was back then and and two or three others were names that people vaguely knew because they'd come and you know given a presentation at university or something like that but beyond that no one knew even who the recruitment firms were that they should be turning to so there was this massive information gap between uh, you know the recruiters that wanted a ton of good candidates to place and the candidates that wanted to move but didn't know how to go about doing that and so the very first kernel of the idea for top consultant was that it it would be built around a database of candidates who wanted to explore career options and recruiters who were in a position to help them and we called that service get headhunted many many years before anyone else in you know the online recruitment space started using that terminology and that was yeah that was the initial um building block if you like for the business in terms of actually selling it in the recruitment industry as i say i, I had some friends that were in recruitment so i was able to get the you know the bare 
nuts and bolts of the industry from from conversations with them. Obviously, as a consultant, you're quite uh, adept at being put into a company or an industry that you've never worked in before and quickly having to grasp, you know, the, the key things you need to know about that industry. But more than anything, this was a a market where nothing existed for these firms. You know, you, you're going back to the days when there was just milk round online for hiring fresh graduates. Monster and maybe Jobsite were there, you know, as, as mass job boards. But there was nothing that was, you know, at all consulting-centric or, or that people in consulting would know, oh, this is where I should turn to. And it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because that's a double-edged sword in that being the first is obviously brilliant. You know, you've got a blue ocean and you can sort of go out and fill that space. I guess the flip side is that people are potentially sceptical of your offering or don't, very few people want to be first. So everyone's happy to go second, but actually very few people want to take that risk first. Is that a challenge that you came across in the in the early days? Our path to being adopted with hindsight is really clear-cut. Okay. We first of all went round and won over all the recruitment agencies that were serving the consulting industry. And then subsequently, as they were going to beauty parades with consulting employers and being asked to talk about, you know, the innovative ways that they were sourcing candidates, they would say time and time again, oh, you know, we were one of the first adopters of using top consultant. We've got better knowledge of how to get results from that site than anyone else. And so they effectively went in and built our credibility with the consulting employers to the point that we would then get lots of calls from consulting employers wanting to know about our service and, you know, what are we missing out on? And the other thing was, you know, pricing-wise, I was trying to remember, and I think we started out from memory at something like £199 for a, a job advert that lasted a month. I might have that wrong, but it was of that order. So for a recruitment agency that was advertising in the Sunday Times to drum up consulting candidate interest and used to spending thousands of pounds a time to do that, actually having a bit of a punt on this working, you know, was not a big step into the unknown. And it wasn't like I was going in and and trying to get them to, you know, sign up to £20,000 of advertising up front. It was literally, you know, they were committing to a few adverts, uh, you know, maybe a grand of spend, and then the whole industry, you know, online recruitment is built around repeat business happening because you've worked for, for, for advertisers. So you do then go on to get, you know, much bigger, uh, more interesting you know, sizes of business from both consulting firms and recruitment agencies. But to get them to test us out in the first place was, you know, was relatively low, low risk. And just to clarify, because you mentioned it just previously, did you have the, when you were going out, was this was this after you'd built your network of consultants? So had you got your database of consultants before this, or was, was this before you went out to the consultants? So, I mean, I have to give Paul credit here. I think it was one of his NCAD MBA friends had launched a business in Australia or was recruiting for a business in Australia. 
and they had hired a lorry and gone and parked that outside the offices of their main competitor with a big recruitment billboard on the side of it. <laughs> so literally, as as every member of staff walked out, there was a big advert in front of them that their you know main competitor was was looking to interview at the moment. And you know, I took that idea and knew London you know really well by this point, and knew where all the consulting offices were. And you know, we hired a big white van, got a top consultant thing to stick on the side of it. And literally, I spent the first two or three days just driving around London, parking that outside consulting firms' offices, handing people flyers um, as they came in and out of the office. And back in those days, you know, today you have to have, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of visitors, depending on the type of site you've got. Um, but back in those days, if we could go to a recruitment business and say we even had, you know, 500 consultants from the top consulting firms who were all interested in having a talk with them about career moves, you know, that already was a big deal Yeah, in, in that space. I love the van idea. And I think even, even today, it, when there's such a focus on technology and how you can automate and you know, use those sort of services to streamline marketing, I think you know, that low-tech solution, something as novel as that, fan, fantastic idea. Were there any others that you used like that throughout the sort of top consultant journey? Ooh, um, I mean, it all seems so dated. <laughs> I, I remember... Uh, you know, and it's hard for people of a certain age to even believe this was ever the case. But you know, we we used to be able to buy pay per click advertising from you know search engines, Google amongst others. You know, and back in those days, it would be you know a penny a click. Yeah, wow. So actually, for you know, for not a big spend at all, we could get a lot of people to our site. And because we were the only site they would have seen where they could register their CV and and get you know recruiters helping them specifically to get a career in consulting we'd have really high conversion rates there as well uh, to, to people going on and signing up so actually the cost for us to build up that candidate base back then was you know was was really quite modest if you were trying to launch that exact same business today it, it would be cripplingly expensive because you'd be into the realms of paying probably you know a pound or more per click depending how, how targeted you want to be. You know, if you want to go to LinkedIn and advertise for specific job titles, specific companies, probably going to be a multiple of that. So, but yeah, it was it was all about making the limited funds that we had available stretch as far as we possibly could. And it's, it's a point you mentioned there around, you were obviously the first into the market and it was cheap to do back then. Now, I I've not seen any others while I've been sort of in the consulting industry. So it might be that they died off, but... I would have assumed that if you've if you've done this and had success, there would have been others who tried to emulate or copy it. And if at the time, you know, pay-per-click's a, a penny or 10p a click, others would have been able to at least try. Did you have any other sort of competitors or copycats who tried to enter that market? And, and actually, how did you respond to that if they did? We've got to remember the timing here was the dot-com crash. So actually, in the first couple of years that we were setting up, we were doing it in you know in a really lean fashion and unless you were running a business you know from your home office you know with a home internet deal 
and minimal costs, you just couldn't have got close to being able to run that kind of site for anything like the cost. So there were a lot of online job boards that came and went around that time because they got serious funding just before us. But then because they built businesses that were designed to, you know, leverage that kind of funding, when the funding dried up, they, you know, a lot of them went to the wall or they got acquired and merged and, and you know, lots of brands disappeared. And also consulting, you know, there are so many different niches you could go after in the UK. People who were looking to, to launch a niche job board tended to go and find a niche that wasn't yet being catered to. So there were, you know, similar things appeared for for lawyers, for bankers, for, you know, various other professions, accountants. Uh, and that made a lot more sense than trying to go head to head with, you know, a business that was already by that stage well established. And focusing on your growth story, because I know when we spoke ahead of the podcast, you know, we talked about all of the other areas that Top Consultant moved into, the job fairs, the conferences, the newsletters. One thing that I think it's always an interesting area with sort of business with business growth is how you go from your initial offering of in your case the job board to extend out and in consulting that's that tends to just be practice area you know we'll go from financial services to energy to fmcg but in a, in a tech business like yours you, it's slightly it's slightly less obvious how did you decide to diversify from just the job board and how did you do that in a way that enabled growth while protecting the brand and not potentially stretching you and the team too thin? Yeah, it was an interesting phase. So when we first started the business, we actually bought a whole load of domains for top accountant, top banker, top, you name it, we had the domain. And the thinking was, you know, we get this business model to work in a sector that we know, you know, we, we know inside out, we're credible in. And then once we've figured out, you know, all the pitfalls in an industry we really know, then we'll be in a position to roll it out to other sectors. And so from the beginning, that was our game plan to create something that we would replicate many times over. What actually happened, you know, in subsequent years was twofold. Firstly, there were other niche board job boards launched in lots of those other sectors, so we wouldn't be launching into, uh, you know, virgin territory. But secondly, we had a really avid client base of both recruitment agencies and direct consulting employers by that stage, and they were just constantly asking us what else could could we do for them, and that was that was twofold um, on the recruitment side. They were having a lot of success with the job board, the CV database, which was only for recruitment agencies. They were having a lot of success with that. And so we started having conversations with firms about all the other ways that we could help them to recruit. Yeah, I'll just give you one example of that. Accenture called us up out of the blue and they said, we're going to be running a massive recruitment event at the London Eye. And uh, we've hired the London Eye We've hired the aquarium next door. And, you know, this is all public domain. They, they took out loads of advertising with the Times and various places like that wow. to try and fill, um, you know, fill that kind of event. And then they turned to us 
to deliver half of all the attendees there. So literally out of the blue, we were suddenly presented with, and I'm trying to think what the figures were. I have a feeling the London Eye takes 400 odd people and they wanted to fill it twice. So they had 400 odd people in the London Aquarium, 400 odd people going around the London Eye, and then halfway through the evening, they'd switch over. So yeah, literally overnight, you know, we were presented with, could we come up with uh, ways that we could leverage the readership we built to, to get people along to that kind of event? And that's just one example of many. But, you know, from that, we spawned what was called a, you know, careers event service, where any recruitment firm or any consulting business that wanted to host a recruitment event and get, you know, a big room full of their type of candidates along to that event, they could just, you know, sort out the venue and we would take care of marketing it for them and getting the people signed up to attend. And for, you know, a period of quite a few years, that was, you know, regardless of the job board, regardless of the CV database, that that was a massive service line, you know, just in its own right. And then alongside that, we were always having conversations with consultancies, uh, you know, that led into other areas. So a classic example of that is the sort of conference and events business that we built up. And that started with consultancies contacting us to see if we knew anyone that they could bring in to train up some of their more junior consultants in being better at selling. As an industry, you know, a number of firms were very conscious of the fact that graduates join straight from university, they've got no sales experience. Then unlike joining, you know, a Procter & Gamble or a Unilever, you don't spend the first years of your career learning to sell and account manage, as you would in those types of businesses. But you get thrown straight into consulting and then you reach a certain point in your career you know sort of give or take the project manager level where all of a sudden you're expected to be able to start generating interest in the consulting firm's offering and yet you've never done any selling before so that was that was a classic example you know that that came to us and did we know uh, any training companies out there that would be able to do that kind of training provision. And as it happened, I, I personally knew a really good sales training company, and we still work with them to this day, uh, SBR Consulting. And they have trained a lot of people making their way up the career ladder in the consulting industry. And so we we launched this seminar called The Art of Selling Consulting Services. And I, I forget the exact figures, but from then till now, it, it's it's numbered in the thousands, the number of people that have been on that training course from the UK, but also flying in from right across Europe, because it's obviously a need that is common to consulting firms, you know, everywhere. And there's a lot of countries where that kind of training still doesn't exist. Yeah, well, uh, and it's a slight tangent, but I know this is obvious, like you said, this is the area of the business you focused on what is it and and you obviously have been involved in this seminar what is it that you think consulting firms or junior consultants get wrong when it comes to sales what are those common challenges that people coming on that training course came with it's as simple as what on earth am i supposed to do yeah you know so, someone who so, so i did quite a lot of selling before even going into consulting so i i come from a sales background uh, you know, and as simple as knowing that sales is about numbers, 
and that you know you've got to if you want to make this many sales in a period of time you know work backwards i need to have this many meetings in order for that to happen if i've got this conversion rate to get that many meetings i need to be starting conversations with this many people work that back okay how many people does that mean i need to be you know having a, an initial conversation with each week or each month or each quarter to stand a chance of hitting my my targets and and to most you know consultants getting up to that senior consultant project manager grade you know that would be something they would never have had any exposure to and yet when you lay it out for people that way and they realize okay if i want to actually bring in you know this much business in a year i'm going to have to network with this many people and have this many calls and coffee meetings and this many formal meetings and tender requests then it starts to become something that you can really manage as a process um so i think that's you know that's a big part of it but it's also you know self belief it's knowing how to handle certain situations it's knowing how to deal with objections um how to uncover you know the real pain points uh, that a consulting client has you know all these things are just things that your average junior consultant hasn't had much exposure to and and why would they yeah and for anyone listening who is say more junior and thinks yeah, they agree with you they want to learn more about sales do you have any books or resources you tend to point people to in the early days before maybe they they get to that level where they're doing more formal sales training i mean unfortunately by that stage it's it's almost too late because it's first-hand experience is the best teacher of sales. If if anyone was listening to this and they're at university and they're wanting to get into a consulting career, I would say the one of the best things you could do, you know, in your summer holidays is to go and get some kind of sales job. Uh, because it it's only by, you know, being on the phone with people loads or being in meetings or whatever it is you need to do to get that sales time that you really pick up the instinctive how to deal with a sales situation kind of mentality and you can go to along to as much you know training or read as many books as you want but it's actually that time spent interacting with people that is the biggest determinant of success but also you know it's why in the consulting industry it's such a pyramid shape because most people who are consultants and senior consultants are not going to be good enough at selling that they can continue to make their way up the ladder. Mm. And at the consulting industry needs that to a degree. I mean, you know, if if you want to be able to promote people to being partner, those partners have to each be, you know, overseeing a a team of a sizable number of more junior people. Yeah. And there's another side to this that because I really like your advice of just go and do a sales job when you, you know, when you're at university, when you're young, go and live it. Uh, and you know, to your point, you learn so much in in this type of area. You learn so much by doing and having you know, feeling uncomfortable, managing objections, all of that, all of those sort of things. The other side, and it's something that I know other guests have talked about, is when I look at consulting, you there is also a slight snobbery around sales. I think I'd say among those who don't get it, but especially in the junior grades and even up to the sort of just below partner grades, there are some people who are. I'd say see sales are just the it's the un, it's the unwanted person at the party. It's got to be there, but don't people don't really want to do it. I, how do you try and because you must have come across people who have said similar or said Tony, you know, this is great, but I'm a delivery guy. Someone else sells. How do you 
try and help those people see the the positive side of sales and the necessity in the career? To be honest, it's not an issue I've seen a lot of in the consulting industry because it's it's so transparent that the only way you're going to make it up beyond a certain level in your current firm is if you can start to sell and, and bring in the bacon, that it's really you know self-interest that people want to learn to sell. Um, or in, in, you know, in a lot of instances, they'll leave consulting because they don't like selling or they, they, they you know, don't like how pressured that makes them feel. I mean, I think you know, one of the things uh, that, that's talked about at the Art of Selling Consulting event is you know, ch- changing your mindset. And actually, good selling is about helping people understand the problems that they've got, the challenges that they're facing, and what some of the solutions to those you know problems and challenges might be. Mm. So if you go into you know a first conversation with someone at a conference and you're thinking, right, by the end of today I've got to have sold this guy on you know letting us send him a, a proposal. Yeah. Um, then actually you're going about that all wrong. Whereas if you you know start that same day and think, right, you know I want to have two or three really good conversations today where I help people think about some of the challenges their business is facing and I'm able to share some ideas that they take away and are really, you know, enthused about, Mm. then I've done a great job of starting the sales process because each of those people will be very happy to hear from me again. And, you know, for us to have a coffee or or a lunch or whatever, you know, in the coming weeks. So yeah, it's as much about mindset, I think, as anything else. And we'll, we will come back to Top Consultant, and, and I know I warned you, and my listeners will be very used to me jumping around, but I I think this is quite an interesting point to touch on because of what you're doing now with social hire, and actually the extent to which the world we're in now, to your point, you know, we're no longer in a world where you have no job boards, we're in a world where LinkedIn is the de facto social network for for professionals, and you can go and find and engage with anyone you want. How much of a shift has that caused in the the sales and the marketing process for consultants? Is it actually it's just the same and it's just a, you know, it's another tool to put your blogs out? Or how has that, from your perspective, sort of changed the game? It should have changed the game a lot. I think in practice, it's changed the game a lot less than it has the potential to. What I, what I mean by that is, so one group of clients that we have at Social Hire are niche consulting firms or partners within consulting practices and we help them use social sites like LinkedIn and others to generate leads for their their consulting practice and and to really turn social into you know a significant source of leads but having said that those consulting firms and those partners they're the exception rather than the rule so i would say it's it's only a small minority of the consulting industry that's really leveraging social selling you know to its full potential at the moment but yeah absolutely for, for people who don't like selling or who are a bit nervous about selling it's actually made things easier because you know without leaving your desk you could actually have started a number of you know really productive conversations with people whereas you know back in my day you would have had to have gone to an industry conference or a networking event or whatever to have got those conversations started, or you'd have had to cold call. 
And, you know, I remember early days of Roland Berger, we were cold calling people to get them along to events and to, you know, to try and open the door and get those, you know, conversations started. So, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, it's had a massive impact for marketing and selling of consulting services, um, for, for recruitment, it's obviously had an impact as well. So, uh, yeah, no stone unturned. It's funny. So I, I previously ran a short-lived estate agency business and remember cold calling. And it, it's one of the probably best learning and most humbling experiences at the same time. It's, uh, it gave me a newfound respect for those people who, I don't think you get them anymore because no one has landlines, but who used to call you at dinner time and offer your parents or offer you gas, electricity, whatever else it was they sold. I think um, it's something, to your point around a sales job, I think more people should experience from both to help with both resiliency and sales skills. Um, but you mentioned there around the clients you work with being the exception. Uh, and I'm, I massively agree. I think most in the industry do not do enough when it comes to social marketing, social selling, using digital mediums. I, I think more should actually do what you did as well about getting vans as well. I think those sort of lo-fi, you know, those more old school techniques still have a, a huge place to play. Um, but what what do you see as stopping consultants actually embracing these tools? Because LinkedIn's, you know, to our conversation earlier about people being willing to embrace something new, LinkedIn's not new. You know, it, it launched 2007. You can correct me if I'm wrong there, but it's been around for about 10 years. What, what do you see stopping people actually using these tools to their full potential? It's actually been around a lot longer than that, I think. Is it 2007 was when it was was... already quite established. Yeah, I I think 2003, 2004 from memory. I'm showing my age more there, Tony, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) I think, as with everything, it's, it's just having the confidence to know what works and being prepared to put your preconceptions behind you. You know, I, I, I still bump into an incredible number of people who think LinkedIn is somewhere where, you know, they should only connect with people they've, you know, done really extensive work with in the past and, you know, would almost entrust their lives to. And, uh, you know, that that's fine if you want to have a network of just, you know, your hundred closest uh, business and, and university contacts. But if you, if you want to use it more proactively then then you you've got to be willing to start conversations with people you don't know and and when you have a good conversation that you then follow that up by connecting and and keeping you know the opportunity of the conversation progressing further open and and nurturing that and i think there's you know there's a certain age of of people in the consulting industry where that sort of doesn't come naturally and obviously over you know the the next 10 15 years we're increasingly going to have people reaching that point in the consulting career ladder where it's totally you know natural to them it's all they've ever known mm. so I, I do think it will shift a lot over the over you know over the next few years but yeah you know we, we work with uh, a number of consulting practices where social media has become one of their most important sources of of new leads you know they they regularly run things like business breakfasts or networking events or uh, launch events for white papers th- these sorts of things and historically they would have invited you know people from their rolodexes and they would have got on the phone cold calling and and tried to drum up interest that way 
now we literally you know generate interest for them with their exact target demographics and you know three four times a year they run that kind of event and they have 50 of their ideal prospects in the room to to present to and to network with and and you know to have in their their sales pipeline so it's absolutely transformative if if you bite the bullet and you know and, and give it a try and i think i think that's a key point there as well of it's not designed, social media won't replace the sales conversation. But to your point around, you almost need to reverse engineer how many sales you want and work backwards. What it can do is amplify that top end of the funnel. So you, to your point, instead of calling my Rolodex of 50, I can reach out to my LinkedIn network of 1,000 and suddenly more of the world knows about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I know... To your point around sort of networking tips, I, you have a huge LinkedIn network, and I'm sure a lot of that comes from your work with Social Hire and, and Top Consultant. But what steps did you take or consciously make to grow your network to where it is today? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually facing the unpleasant prospect at some point in the next year or so of hitting LinkedIn's limit of how many connections you're allowed. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to be uncomfortable when uh, you know there's people that I want to have business relationships with trying to connect with me and I can't accept because I have no more <laughs> no more space left. Is it still thirty thousand the but, the limit? Yeah, that's right. And beyond that, people can follow you, but you can't uh, you can't actually connect. So, but anyway, I shall figure out how to tackle that over the coming months. But to answer your question, I mean. I was in an unusual situation, I guess, with Top Consultant, that we had this massive global readership of consulting professionals. I forget what the peak traffic was at the site, but something like 300,000 uh, people using the site. Wow. Um, so just massive uh, you know, awareness of us. Uh, and then through things like the careers fair and uh, all the different workshops and conferences we were running, you know, I would literally meet thousands of people each year who were in that space. Often I'd be presenting to them. And when you're in that kind of position, you know, and, and consulting partners who are presenting at, you know, industry events, for example, would see the same thing. You know, you have a lot of people who don't, you don't know, but they reach out to you because, you know, I saw you present at this or that event, uh, you know, would love to stay connected. And so, that does result in you getting, you know, a massive network that it would otherwise be quite hard to replicate. And more recently, because of the work I do at Social Hire, I'm invited to speak at a lot of uh, business schools and universities on the impact that social media is having on social media marketing, how to use social media to help you land a, uh, you know, a job when you graduate with your MBA, for example. So again, I, I meet a lot of people at schools across Europe who then you know want to stay in touch and be connected so yeah I don't know if that answers your question but but that's how I've ended up with such a massive network it's almost been an unavoidable uh, side effect of of that kind of exposure and public speaking that I do and I actually just want to touch on the point you mentioned there around the the talks you do because I think that could be a really interesting area, not just for MBA candidates, but for anyone looking for a job. Because to your point, I 
I've really only found the power of LinkedIn this year since launching the podcast and working with guests and working to promote it and speaking to people from that perspective. And and prior to that, I I really use LinkedIn just to, you know, LinkedIn with a recruiter and just see what they're they're offering. But actually, that speech that you give to MBA students, what are your top tips for actually using social media to to find new roles? Well, let me start by saying what I find staggering is just how many people in the room still have a really rudimentary understanding both of social media and of the role that it now plays both in business development and in recruitment and and particularly when you're you know presenting to MBAs you would think you know here's a room of really intelligent switched on people i would expect them you know, to have more of an understanding of this than they do. Oh, so even in the MBA classes you present to, they're they're far behind the curve. Well, I, I'm not sure, but that's the point. I'm not sure it's behind the curve in the <laughs> sense that I think that is actually the norm mm. and it's more the exception for someone to really have understood how to get the most out of these sites. I think the key shift that, you know, everyone needs to, to, to understand is... You used to have a world where the main way that you would fill roles would be to advertise them or to engage a recruitment firm to try and find and hire people for you. Today, you know, we're in a world where any employer can basically try and find and approach candidates for roles that they're looking to fill without having to advertise or or advertising at the same time so that they've got you know an insurance policy but consequently you know it, it, it's possible for a role that would have been advertised 10 years ago to be filled without you or I ever knowing that that company was trying to fill that position because they've done it under the radar the only people that know that that role is there uh, are the people they've approached to see if they'd like to be interviewed and obviously that has all sorts of competitive ramifications as well. You know, if if a consulting business wants to move into a new area, if they advertise that position widely, then, you know, the whole market knows they're doing that. If they fill those positions discreetly just by approaching people they'd like to hire, then the market doesn't know about that. So I think, you know, that's really important as a change that's happened. But also, I would say, you know, the advertising side is stronger than some people give it credit for. So when you do need, you know, to fill a position and you need it to happen quickly, the fastest way of that happening is to put that position in front of people who are looking to change jobs because they will come in for interview in the next days. They will be ready to hand in their notice and move quickly Whereas if you're trying to approach people on somewhere like LinkedIn, you know, you're going to be approaching a lot of people who actually aren't looking to change jobs. Yeah. And so there's a lot longer process involved in winning those people over, coaxing them to come to interview once they've been made an offer, getting them to actually follow through and, and accept that and make the move. So, yeah, it's not, it's not clear cut in terms of, you know, advertising having disappeared and LinkedIn having taken over everything, it's more nuanced than that. And I think, uh, yeah, there's very much a role for both both of those things at the moment. And uh, consultancies have been, uh, you know, sharp 
to to exploit the opportunities there. I would say sharp in a in a positive, you know, switched on uh, sense. I want to touch on that as it relates to to top consultant. I do just want to hold on the the MBA point and just, I guess, to what you said around candidates that you're you know you're in the room with maybe they're not behind the curve from the industry but for those like yourself who you know understand where technology is moving maybe they are what are the sort of two or three common if there are common questions or misconceptions that you get from those rooms that you have to correct or do correct during those talks or presentations so i mean a couple of things firstly and we've talked about reverse engineering a few times on the call you know as a candidate you've got to reverse engineer what would a recruiter be doing if they were looking for their ideal candidate on LinkedIn? And you wouldn't believe the number of times I've sat down with people who you know want to get into this or that industry. And you look at some of the most common skills and keywords that a recruiter would definitely be looking for someone to have if they were you know going to be a hire, an obvious hire in that industry, and they don't have them on their profile. And you say, okay, so you pretend to be a recruiter searching LinkedIn to find your ideal candidate and now see all the reasons why you as a candidate don't show up in that search result. Mm. And it's very often not that the candidate doesn't have those skills or that experience to appear in the search result. They just haven't thought about it that way. And so, you know, don't have, uh, don't appear in, in search results. You know, if you think about it in, a, in consulting terms, you know, there are certain key skills that every consultant has to have. You've got to have presentation skills. You've got to have team leadership skills, et cetera, et cetera. But yet, if you haven't listed those as skills on LinkedIn, then every time a recruiter searches for candidates and they put in the box, only show me candidates who've got team leadership skills, mm. guess what? You're not showing up as a, a potential match for that job. So I would say that whole, you know, optimizing your profile and, and keywords and, and reverse engineering how a, a recruiter would be searching, you know, is something that anyone could invest a bit of time to correct. And the other thing is, you know, the hidden settings on LinkedIn. There are, for, for the last, I'm going to say, 18 months now, something like that, you know, there's settings on LinkedIn now where you can flag to recruiters who don't work at your current employer that you are interested in having a under the radar conversation about changing jobs mm. and you can indicate you know the type of business you'd be interested in joining the locations that would be of interest the job titles that would be of interest and that basically means that you are shown more prominently to recruiters who are searching for that kind of candidate uh, but again you know if you if you don't know that that setting exists on linkedin or you haven't taken the time to go and you know fill out that page of information, then there's just all these searches happening of people who would like to hire someone like you, where you're never showing up. And yeah, just they're simple things to put right. But I would say the vast majority of candidates you know, ha haven't done those things. I do want to bring us back to the point you made around responding to market change and how there's still you know there's definitely still a place for job boards and i think the fact you know people are still using top consultants and their hundreds of thousands of testament to that even even while other platforms are coming up and the reason i 
I touch on that is I think in today's sort of business world, the the current sort of sexy or buzzwords that everyone's talking about is innovation and disruption. And everyone wants to avoid being disrupted. Everyone wants to disrupt everyone else. You know, it's, it's like a classroom of sort of slightly petulant 10-year-olds. There's lots and lots of disruption. But what I'm interested on is you have survived as a business and thrived through the dot-com the dot-com bust as you highlighted earlier then linkedin coming and growing and then where we are now with a whole myriad of platforms that are trying to enter the space trying to look at different models for recruitment and other approaches for connecting candidates and employers i'd be fascinated to understand and how you and the team have approached that challenge of managing and responding to potential disruption in the industry to remain relevant and remain at the forefront of the industry? I mean, a lot of it comes down to listening to the market. And I know one of the questions you thought we might touch on is, you know, starting up a business and how do you do the research for that and how do you make it successful and so on. But, you know, whether you're starting up a new business or whether you're in a business and trying to stay current, it's all about listening to the people in your market and listening to what their you know their challenges are what their their needs are what, what what difficulties they're facing up to for example you know one of the issues that that linkedin has had has, is that it's been a victim of its own success mm. so there was a period quite a number of years ago now where uh, messaging candidates on linkedin would produce a really good response rate and so we would have consultancies that were experimenting with that, were getting you know amazing results, uh, and that was a bit of a concern. But actually, because LinkedIn then went out and sold that solution as far and wide as they possibly could, the the whole supply and demand there totally changed. And and now, if you talk to a lot of candidates who are in demand, you know they they're frankly fed up with how many pitches they get on. LinkedIn, you know, to to, uh, to be interviewed for a position in certain sectors. You know, you see this in in the tech market in Silicon Valley, for example. People are just taking themselves off LinkedIn, or they're removing all the information from their profiles so that recruiters don't find them and they don't keep on getting pestered. Yeah. But the the point is, if you if you just are you know locked in your office, running your business not talking to people in the market enough, then you don't hear th- about these kinds of changes happening. Whereas, you know, and it comes back to what I was saying about selling and, and listening to other people being an absolutely key skill. If you're always asking questions and probing about, you know, the challenges that businesses are facing, what they're struggling with, what's changing in the market, you know, it, it leaves you much better position to to adapt you'll you'll change direction sooner than you otherwise would have done you might be able to innovate and come up with uh, you know new ways of doing things yeah so so all sorts of benefits to that but i would say both in launching new businesses and then in in helping them to to thrive and also to see out you know more difficult times you know i think i think that's been been key across the board and building on that listening point cuz you like you've highlighted, it's some. It's a theme you've mentioned a few times, and is a, is a really key point. How do you filter between what is 
an industry need as opposed to someone's pet want or pet thing? And this is a really interesting one when it comes to starting up a business. So I always cringe when I see a a startup team in perfecting their business plan, in taking it out, in trying to get investment, in, you know, researching the market some more. And before you know it, you know, six or nine months have gone by and they don't yet have, you know, a product or a service that they're actually trying to sell. For me, the crucial thing is to get to, I think it's referred to as minimum viable uh, product, isn't it, in, in, in most circles, you know, get that to market as quickly as you possibly can because it's only by being in the market and trying to sell it to people that you uncover, A, if there's a market there for it, but B, B, more likely how it needs to evolve to become a product that people would want to buy. And I would say, you know, most startup founders that I talk to who've been successful they have had a a pivot in their business at some point in the early years where what they thought the business was originally going to be and what it ended up being you know were, were two different things you know I, I talked to you about the top consultant business and us having top banker and top accountant and so on you know we, we didn't go down that route in the end because by being in the market we learned there was loads more demand in other areas Whereas, you know, if if you're never in the market, if you spend all the time finessing your idea and it's only six or nine months in that you learn that the market isn't willing to pay for that, then, you know, you, you've burnt through all the cash that you'd set aside to set up this business. Does, does that help? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good point. I, I can't remember where the quote's from, so I, I'm, I'm going to use it and if, if you or someone else remembers who it was I'll, I'll attribute it but so it was along the lines of everyone everyone will say they buy it they'll buy it until you ask for money and actually that that fundamental difference of asking people do you think this sounds good would you buy it versus can I have you know even 10 pounds I, I, that that mental shift to your point is what shows you if the business is right or not and I think like you highlight the there seems to be a lot of startup businesses who are getting a lot of money for idea questionable ideas there's some great ones out there and some great ones in our industry but there's a lot that seem to be questionable of questionable value i think i'd i'd probably say to you mentioned the point there around you know you speak to a lot of successful startup founders and, and like i mentioned sort of when we caught up before the my listener base and probably as much to a surprise as me but to your point you you don't know who's going to like your thing until you put it out has actually been consultants sort of like you were in Roland Berger who are looking to go out on their own be it in consulting businesses be it elsewhere what other commonalities or sort of similar similar traits do you find in in those successful entrepreneurs that you you speak to or or coach or mentor so I must answer that firstly by saying and and it's unfortunate but I have a lot of conversations with people who are starting up a business who want to make social media a key part of their business down the line when they've got money coming in when when they've got some money that they can invest in something you know social media is one of the first things that they want to invest in and unfortunately 
because I keep in touch with all those people to you know to to then hopefully work with a number of them. A lot of them just never you know that they become the businesses that that fail. And I would say invariably that's been down to one of two things: either they've spent too long perfecting things before they've gone to market, as we were just talking about, or they've just massively underestimated how long things are going to take. And uh, one of the you know, biggest bits of advice I would give to people, you know, thinking of starting up something for themselves is a, you know, try and save up as much money and restructure your life such that you can make that money last you as long as possible. Yeah. And secondly, whatever you've put in your business plan for how long it's going to take, you know, to win sales and to get those invoices paid and so on and so forth, massively elongate that. Mm. Because nothing ever happens faster than you were expecting it to. It always takes longer than you were expecting to and so many businesses i've you know where the founders have tried to do it on their own on a shoestring budget and it wasn't that their ideas were bad i've seen a lot of people with the exact same idea who've then made it a success Mm. but the the ones that have failed are the ones where they just didn't give themselves a big enough window of viability to actually be in the market and get to the point that that sales are coming in. And I think you have to have been in business for yourself to to really appreciate that. Because when we're working in consulting, we tend to be working with, you know, large corporates who've got big checkbooks and, you know, the minute they decide they want something, uh, they can go out and and, and buy it. But actually, you know, when uh, for most businesses, you're going to be selling to other small businesses or you're going to be selling to the public. And it can very easily take, you know, several months from first conversation to them actually biting the bullet and buying what it is you offer. Or, you know, if you are selling to big companies, they might be in an annual budgeting process where, yes, they really want what it is you offer, but I have to submit that as part of next year's budget. And so, you know, that could mean it's six or nine months before it's there's even a sniff that you might get the business. Mm. So to, to sort of reverse that and come back to, you know, the commonalities of, of success, I think um, that whole frugality and having enough money behind you to get, just give you a decent window of time to make a success of the business um, is absolutely key. And then getting something into the market as quickly as you possibly can is critical. Top consultant, I remember, you know, we were beavering away on the code for the very first top consultant site the day before we'd said it was going to go live. But, and it went live, you know, far less polished than I would have wanted it to be. But we could have spent, you know, the next six months polishing it. And, you know, actually, some of the things that we put on the original site, people had absolutely no interest in whatsoever. Whereas the forum, you know, to gossip and chat about the consulting industry was massively popular. We thought the Get Headhunted CV database would be the main breadwinner. Mm. Actually, it was a job board. People yeah. being able to look at what, what jobs are there, what what are they being paid, which companies are advertising. You know, that and the forum were massive 
magnets for people to keep returning to the site time and time again. But if we hadn't got, you know, the site launched, we would have been coming up with our hypotheses of what people wanted rather than actually, you know, working. And, and it's it's that consulting mantra, isn't it? That, you know, if you don't have data, it's just your opinion. Mm. So don't take a decision on something. If there's data that can be got that, that backs up a decision, always get that data as quickly as you can so that you take an informed decision rather than going with your gut instinct, which, you know, time and time again could be proven to be wrong. I'll just give you one um, interesting anecdote from that. So one part of the site that we had on Top Consultant for a number of years was a subscriber area for contractors Mm. so that they could, you know, when they were coming to the end of a contract, they could find their next contract consulting opportunity. And it was a subscription service. It wasn't big money, but people paid to access that part of the site. And it was my assumption and, and the rest of the teams that showing people as many different contracts as possible on the sales page for that service would be the absolute winner. You know, if we can demonstrate just how massive the range of opportunities there are once you go into this subscription area, if we can demonstrate that, people are going to be falling over themselves to sign up. Yeah. And basically, you know, we got our hands on uh, some software that allowed you to run different variants of of the sales page and you know, run the statistics to determine what the you know the best version was and hands down and it was a, by a factor of several fold wow not showing any of the contracts massively increased the sign up rate and that that's the difference between you know that subscription offering being viable mm. And not being viable, because if we had to pay a certain amount of money or use a certain amount of our ad inventory to get people to that page in the first place, then if they convert, you know, five times better, that is absolutely the make or break of the business. But but again, you know, to come back to the point, we could have spent ages perfecting a version of the sales page that had all those contracts on. And by not being in the market, we would have, you know, polished a turd i think is the, <laughs> is the phrase but um yeah it's just absolutely key and actually uh, and again i think that you know it comes back to the one of the core points you've mentioned throughout this interview of that listening and you know that's sort of listening in a digital context and again i it struck me i don't i don't know how many consulting firms do that that well to the extent you're talking about that sort of ab testing i do though on that point around sort of creating the mvp i there's an interesting sort of challenge, and well, maybe it's not a challenge. So you can you can tell me. But the other side of that sort of what are consultants like? You mentioned about the get the data, don't just trust your trust your gut in gut instinct. The other flip side of that is traditionally consultants are used to creating very polished things. So you will go into a client and you you know you'll do all your work. You might sort of check in with them, sound them out on some things, but there is sort of an unwritten rule that what the client sees should be almost, if not perfect. And I think consultants in some some areas then take that back when they're looking at services. And I guess the, the question is, to what extent do you need that MVP to be a level above because your consulting buyer, let's say, wants to see something more perfect? Or have you found that 
consulting buyers are actually quite willing to accept something that, to your point around top consultant, is maybe not as polished because it's an early stage product? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I remember reading a, a case in the last few months, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the author, so I can't attribute it, just, just as uh, you were saying earlier. But you know, the, their take on launching anything new was create sales pages, create different versions of the sales page, and actually put it out there for sale before you have even the minimum viable product. Yeah. Get people to sign up for something offering a price that is, you know, significantly discounted to what you're going to offer it for once it's up and running. Mm. And that allows you, without them putting any of the cost or time into developing, you know, the website or the app or the service or whatever it is, you can establish if there's actually a market for this. And if, you know, it's a roaring success you've then got the funds that you can put into uh, accelerating the rate at which you develop it. If it's a dog and it's just not selling, well, at least all you've done is put some money into marketing. Yeah. You've not you've not put all the cost into, you know, investing in the technology. I don't know if it was either of these, but that makes me immediately think of two two books, one of my one of my all-time favorites and one that I advise anyone in the marketing space to read. So the, the Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss, I know he talks a little bit around that. And then there's Dot Com Secrets by Russell Brunson. I don't know if you've come across Russell Brunson before. He's a big in the internet marketing it, space. It wasn't either no, of neither those. Of those? No. Okay, well, there's uh, hopefully those help you or someone listening might want to go and check those out. But um, the, the point you make is, I think it can be applied to consulting, is... Uh, build the sales literature, have the conversations, and when someone buys the thing, figure out how to do it afterwards, which I guess in effect is how most consulting propositions are sold in the early days anyway. So, uh, mm. no, it's, and, and the last question on... Sorry, go on, Tony. I was just going to say, I, I think um, there's a world of difference between setting up a business that already exists you know, a market, a service, an offering that already exists and you're just trying to do it a bit better or a bit differently to what's already out there mm. versus setting up an offering that doesn't exist. And, you know, in consulting, we're very used to benchmarking other competitors out there, figuring out what they're doing, what we're doing slightly different, how we could finesse things, what pricing we could do that would give us an edge, you know, all that kind of stuff. And and for a lot of people wanting to start up a business, actually the most important thing is that you go and you get experience in the industry that you you know aspire to launching a business in, so that the most obvious pitfalls and uh, shortcomings you learn about at someone else's expense rather than your own. Mm. Whereas you know the businesses that I've been involved in essentially have been taking a, a punt on, I believe there's a market for this or that service. And I'm going to back myself, A, that we can provide that service, and B, that I can go out and uncover enough people that have a need for this, that, that we're going to sell it and make it viable. And that was true, you know, both for, for Top Consultant, nothing like that existed at the time. And Social Hire more recently, uh, you know, we were one of the first social media agencies to, to to be established. So there wasn't an established price point for the kind of service we offered. Uh, there wasn't 
and established testimonials, case studies, what you would expect to get back if you were, you know, investing in this kind of service. Mm. So, yeah, I think that that's, you know, another big distinction. Obviously, in consulting, it's a great industry in one sense in that, you know, if you've gone into consulting, you're good at it, you've got to the point where you've started selling consulting services, it's then quite a known entity for you to go and set up your own consulting business offering a service that's you know not dissimilar i think people often get a shock there when they discover how much harder it is to sell when you don't have a big firm consulting brand behind you but in every other respect you know you know what that business looks like you know what the cost structure of it looks like you know how long it takes to win a client you know what kind of fee rates you're likely to be able to secure when you do win a client Mm. you know how much repeat business you're likely to get you know what the cost structure of your staff base looks like so it's it's quite a known thing you're moving into versus you know a a lot of businesses that we're seeing being started up in all the the disruptors you're talking about where you know it, it really is there's only so much research you can do to establish, you know, what the price points might be or, or what the cost might be, you've got to be in the market really and creating the demand for that service or that that product and almost, yeah, creating a market where one didn't exist. And it's the last question I'll ask on the the starter point because I think we've covered some some really interesting areas in this, and I, you know, you've shared some fantastic advice. So I think to that point around. You started Top Consultant and Social Hire as new businesses in new areas that were run known. And we talked a lot at the start about the the top consultant journey and how things were different back then. You know, 2000 was a long time ago in terms of technology and adoption of these sort of things. It's a bit of a hypothetical one, but I'd be really interested in if you were doing it again now, what is it you would do differently and what potentially new technology or new methods would you have been utilizing now that you weren't able to do when it was the the white van going around the consulting offices? It's hard to think beyond social media with, <laughs> with the uh, the business I now run because my my sort of instincts are just uh, there's so much potential that could be exploited there. But yeah, you know, you you might very well have built the whole thing around an app. You know, I, I've seen various businesses now launched that are serving a particular niche recruitment market where they've gone straight to apps and just getting you know things on people's phone where they can receive push notifications where you can have you know live chats or calls between recruiters and candidates you know from from uh, from the offset so that would certainly be one angle that that you would potentially look at using social media to build the original audience rather than pay-per-click would probably be another one. You wouldn't be able to do the white van routine nearly as much because everyone hot desks now and there's not nearly as many people in a consulting office on any particular day of the week. So, yeah, uh, fun one to think about. Yeah, and it's a shame because I do. I really like the the white van ideas you mentioned and I think there are... I think there's still room for those sort of guerrilla marketing tactics as they're you know, sometimes referred to. But to your point, the the breadth and depth with which you can target on social media, you, know, you mentioned LinkedIn, the that and I mean, I've, Facebook, the extent to which you can target on Facebook, 
I think is only scarier than the lack of awareness people have on how they are targeted on Facebook. Mm. But the extent to which you can target these days, to your point, you know, so while the white van worked 20 years ago, now you don't need it because you can search for consultants at name your firm and target them with advertising with a picture of a white van saying we've got jobs. Maybe that's the uh, <laughs> maybe that's the next campaign. Uh, so Tony, we, we've covered some some fascinating grounds in this chat, and I'm I'm always interested in the the answer to this question. But I'm going to say up front, I know I asked about books earlier and with sales, you said it's life experience, get out there and do it. So if the answer to this is actually, I don't, I just tell people to go out and do the thing they want to do, that that's as good an answer as recommendations. But I, I'm interested if there are any books that you suggest or you find yourself giving to people say, young entrepreneurs who are speaking to you about starting a business, are there any books that you find yourself recommending to people most often? I'm not a particularly avid book reader, so so no. I'm much more into reading up on all the latest case examples, um, webinars, in-depth how-to articles. You know, so people like... Neil Patel, for example, mm. you know, you can just learn so much from them in a short space of time, backed up by numbers, backed up by case examples. So, so that tends to be where I get my insights from. Maybe we should, maybe we go go that way then, because I think it's a, a, a actually a huge untapped resource. And I know you did a bit of a post around influences, but if people are listening to this and and want to check out more on some of the topics, who are people that you would point them to that you get that information from it's almost it's it's not as straightforward as that so one of the great upsides of investing in having a better social network yourself is that you tap into the crowd knowledge and what i mean by that is so i'm connected with huge numbers of of social media managers of digital marketers of business owners and founders. And so my social stream is full of those people sharing things that have been incredibly useful to them in their, their businesses. Now, clearly when I when I see someone like Anil Patel come up, then then you know I immediately, yes, this is probably worth uh, worth reading. And there's companies, you know, Buffer, for example, Buzzsumo who produce really good uh, insights in, into what's working right now. Mm. But more valuable than anything are the sort of hidden gems that you also get, that this network of contacts that are really niche to, to what you personally do are sharing things that they've found or tools or apps that are really transforming the way they're doing things. And I think for anyone who hasn't built a strong enough network in their industry, you're missing out on that. And for anyone who isn't spending much time on social media, you're also missing out on that. So that that would be my advice to, uh, you know, to someone in that kind of early phase of thinking about going into business or indeed going into consulting, just try and build a, a network of people who uh, you know are, are, are really respected, who are in your niche, 
and then see what is it that they are sharing and, and commenting on and raving about. And I mentioned mentioned BuzzSumo a few minutes ago, but BuzzSumo is you know one of the tools we use as a social media agency. It's fascinating, but isn't it, it allows you to see, um, yeah, is see what content is generating the most buzz on social media for for any you know niche topic but also uncover who are the influencers on any particular topic and then see what those people have been sharing. So with a bit of research, you can really quickly uncover, you know, just, just tons of resources that you otherwise would never have known even existed. I think you, you highlight, it's actually a shift in how you use a tool like LinkedIn, isn't it? It's, it's not viewing it, it's, it's moving from viewing it as a... I guess a Facebook sort of something that you shouldn't really be on that you might you know you like a couple of things to so actually viewing it as an industry conversation and to your point drawing drawing from that industry conversation and I you know you're you're quite right you know the we'll see how it lands but the new hashtag tool in LinkedIn has made it phenomenally easy to find content on a topic you want to read and actually it's largely become a a search engine in its own right. And to your point, it, all you need to do is actually build a network that, of the right people and that content served up to you. You don't have to go looking for it. Really good tips. And it's nice to get a... So I love the books that I get and I've got an ever-growing reading list from my previous guests. I think it's also great to get some people and services that don't always come up. And actually, you know, to your point, I think places like Buffer, BuzzSumo um, and others, I think are a great case study for consulting firms to learn from in terms of actually what you should be giving in terms of free value because that they give so much for without asking for anything and actually you can learn so much about social media but most you know you can learn so much about most areas of specialism by just finding the right people and right content providers yeah so last question tony and i'll be very interested in your answers to to this because I think it'll come from your consulting hat, your your top consultant hat, and your social hire hat. And so take this one as you see best. And this is one I ask to all of my guests, and that is you have three people in front of you. You have someone who's just starting their career in consulting, so sort of analyst grade, 21, 22. You have someone who's four to five years in. Now I sort of I crudely say consultant to manager, but that those middle grades in whatever firm you're in. And then you have someone who is approaching partner or that equity position or that decision to, to you know, jump out and start their own, maybe their own consulting firm. And the question is very simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each one of them? So if I start with the, the new joiners, and I would say actually this extends beyond consulting, and it's as true in my current business as it, as it was in a consulting firm, it's to appreciate as quickly as you can that one of the main values you provide is being someone that tasks can be delegated to that free up the time of the people more senior than you. Mm. And, and what I mean by that is there are a lot of people go into consulting and need quite a bit of handholding. And, you know, maybe they, they deliver back work that isn't perfect first time and the project manager has to, you know, then invest time in polishing that work, correcting things, you know, whatever it might be. Or the, the junior person actually becomes a time drain on, on their project manager because they're actually going and asking them for help 
about things that, you know, a little bit of Google research, they actually could have found that answer and not needed to, to, to trouble that person. There's a fine line between spending time with the more senior people in, in your team that, that you get noticed and that you learn from them. But I think the, the biggest, one of the biggest differentiators I've seen between people who've, whose careers really taken off quickly in a consulting firm versus those that have just kind of progressed more or less at the pace of everyone else it's really those people that you know you give them a, a part of the consulting project that needs to be delivered you set them a deadline that is you know two weeks from now and you can go away and sleep comfortably knowing that you're going to get what you asked for back in two weeks and it's going to be ready to present to the client pretty much as it is and if you can if you can do that as quickly as you can in your consulting career you then make yourself someone that people will fight to have on their consulting project team mm. because they really view you as someone they that's dependable that they can hand something off to and know they're going to get it back you know to the standard that's needed whereas if you don't if you don't quite take that initiative that then you're always as much of a burden on, on the project managers as you are you know a, an asset really simple bit of advice but I, I've seen it pay off a lot in consulting certainly you know now in my, my social media agency and I'm very fortunate we've got a really good team but each person knows that our business is constrained in how fast it can grow if I have to be involved in every client project and every client decision that gets taken they equally know that if they can only turn to me when they you know really need input that that massively frees up you know my time to grow the business and train people and just make you know more of a success of the business so rambled on for a bit there but yeah that would that would be my advice for you know for your new joiners for those that are sort of as you said four or five years in which was give or take the kind of level that, that I moved out of Rodenberger, I would say look ahead and build your network. Ideally, try and figure out what industry you would like to be, you know, become a specialist in. What is your niche area of expertise going to be as you progress further up the consulting ladder and just start trying to build your network as quickly as you can in that particular space because i i think without question that the most difficult jump to make in a consulting firm is going from being good at delivering consulting work to being someone that actually contributes to the the business winning new consulting clients and so the the thing you can do you know at that stage of your career that really will set you apart from other people of a similar level is to make that step that means that you're going to have more of a network, more contacts, more people you can get meetings with, talk to when you get to that point that you need to start selling. So that would be my advice for someone at, at the mid-levels. And at the senior levels, I mean, I think of the best consulting partners or those trying to make it to become a partner at the next promotion round. And the, the best ones were the ones that the rest of the consulting team loved working for. Mm. We we would happily 
stay up and work into the night. We would happily work a weekend for that person because they were one of the team. We, you know, we really related to them. We knew that they wouldn't be asking us to do that unless it was absolutely critical. And I'd sort of compare and contrast in the consulting industry. You've got some people approaching partner level who've had to work long hours and weekends and, and feel like they can, you know, it's almost a rite of passage mm. that everyone else should have to do that yeah. to get to where they've got to in their career. And then you've got others that actually really value your time, you as a person. And and yeah, it's a huge, huge differentiator there. So it's hard to translate what that actually means you should be doing in practice, but but think about, you know, how many people would actually want to go for a, a meal with you? How many people would willingly come in this weekend, not because it's going to help them get promoted, not because it's going to help them secure their bonus, but because the relationship you've got with them means that they wouldn't want to let you down. Mm. And if you, I think if you can get to that point as a, you know, a consulting partner or, or someone approaching being partner, that's really set you up for, you know, for success. It's also set you up to be able to leave that firm and go and set up your own business and lots of clients and lots of consultants, you know, wanting to get move with you. So, yeah, valuable for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, fantastic advice, Tony. And I think that that last point around actually the softer side that doesn't always get talked about, you know, we talk about the delivery, the sales, but actually the are they a nice, you know, be a nice person and be someone people want to work for and with and you will go far. I know, so I, I'm independent now, but to your point, I know when I was in consulting, there were some partners you loved to work for, some you didn't. And the ones who you love to work for have, you know, gone further since since then and I think will continue to. So really good advice. Tony, this has been brilliant to catch up. It's been great to to chat with you talk all about the top consultant journey and like I said find out the story behind the platform that me and hundreds of thousands of other consultants have and continue to use the only thing left to ask is for anyone who's listened to this and wants to find out more about you more about top consultants or more about social hire where would you point them to where can they get in touch so I guess um, the, the natural answer to that would be please do connect on LinkedIn if you want to talk about recruiting for your consulting firm getting help with that happy to have that conversation if you'd like to talk about you know marketing your business and and generating leads equally happy to have that conversation but if you send a connection request on on linkedin as a first point of call that that would be great brilliant well i will i will put your linkedin address in the show notes so people can find you and i think it also talks quite nicely to the point you made around absorbing content from others because i know you're quite prolific in sharing and commenting on content. And I think what I've learned about LinkedIn has increased dramatically since we connected and the things you've shared. So people who want to follow that approach as well, great chance to connect with you. And like you said earlier, they've they've only got a certain amount of time before they've got to follow you instead. So get, get in while they can, I guess. <laughs> um, Tony, <Yes. laughs> really enjoyed this. So thank you very much. And all the all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Thanks ever so much, Nick. It's been a pleasure and th- thanks for inviting me on. Brilliant. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. 
If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.